Uh, anyway. I don't dress nearly as nicely when I'm <laughs> going out. <laughs> For our listeners, Katie is someone that we've known since she was an awesome undergrad at Cornell. And now Katie has gone mm-hmm. on and is, um, I guess, in the process of finishing your professional degree, right? Well, like how many... that was the plan, but actually it's, I'm taking some time off to do my PhD. Mm. So I'm in a dual degree program at Davis now. Oh, okay. I, I thought you would only apply to the vet program. Did you apply for the I vet did. PhD? No, oh. I actually came to vet school. That's what I wanted to do for the longest time. And then yeah. I finished my first year here and I just, I thought, you know, like something was missing. Like I came to vet school to save the animals just like everyone else. But for some <laughs> reason, like something was missing. Like, not that I didn't want to save the animals, but there's <laughs> just not quite as much as everyone else. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was really involved in research in undergrad and I feel like that was, was what was missing. So I took a summer, did a research project here and just decided, you know, like this is, this is what's missing. And then I applied to the program and then I got in like, I came to vet school to save the animals just like everyone else. But for some <laughs> reason, like something was missing and you leave your class and do the PhD just like everyone else yeah. and then come back and do your final two clinical years. So, oh, okay. So it's almost like, is it almost the same as doing a combined MD PhD? Exactly. So it's exactly. like in this kind of combined exactly. vet PhD. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really exciting. Actually, it's actually a joint program with the MD PhD program in the Sacramento campus. So we see each other. Huh often yeah all the time yeah wait wait wait. we need to formally more formally introduce our guests like no one even knows her name they know just awesome things yes (laughs) yes we will edit accordingly but um so on this episode of phd divas we're very excited to introduce all of you to katie hong uh welcome katie thank you it's so good to be here and to catch up with you guys it's been so long seems like it's been years and years and years yeah. Been too long. We knew Katie before we did PhD Divas. So she knew us before we did PhD. Yeah, I before know. we became the PhD Divas. <laughs> and as our quick tagline intro, of course, we're the podcast about academia, culture, and social justice for people who might be listening for the first time. And I'm Dr. Zainyao, representing the humanities. I'm Dr. Liz Lane. I represent Krispy Kreme Donuts. And. <laughs> um, yeah, and engineering, yes. <laughs> yeah, just a little thing about cancer research. But yeah, Katie, oh, how about yeah. you tell us a little bit about yourself? What's your background? What's your story? Sure, yeah. Um, so I'm actually a California native. Um, I moved to Ithaca, New York for my undergrad where I met the two of you. Um, and I did my degree in animal science and biology, graduated, decided vet school is my thing, so I decided to move back to California. Um, and so I did my first two years of vet school and now I am pursuing my PhD as a part of the dual DVM PhD, PhD program. So I'm less involved in the vet school happenings. I'm fully into my PhD. I just finished my first year. Mm. So Yay. yeah, you know, it's exciting. Um, the kind of work that I'm doing now is actually in collaboration with the California National Primate Research Center. Hmm. So I, I work in an HIV SIV lab, wow. and we look at health and the role of 
probiotic microbes, our bacteria, and chronic inflammation. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, we're going to talk about this. Just, yeah, like now you, you have love, all the synchronicity between you and Liz. Um, um, I love uh, inflammation. Inflammation ah. is, yeah, it's the, the root of all evil. <laughs> um, but I'm really interested if we can go back for a second and go back to this transition from vet school to PhD. So when did you want to know that you want to be a vet? Oh, my gosh. How did I know I wanted to be a vet? Mm-hmm. What's your life yeah, story? Yeah, I, mean, I want to talk about that process for a bit because from yeah. what I understand, it's really hard to get into vet school. And, like, it's a really interesting discipline and, and the way this works is really interesting. So I, I wanted to kind of hear about that. Yeah. And then eventually talk about your transition. Yeah. So it's interesting because just <laughs> a little while ago, my mom sent me this video of myself when I was about a year old. Uh-huh. So there's this um, this coming out party that is... Go on. Okay. <laughs> party that Interesting choice of words. When, you're, <laughs> when you turn one okay. in sort of the Chinese culture and tradition. Oh, I never and had that. Do... <laughs> oh, so anyway, sad. I didn't know um, I was missing I, out. I didn't know about it until she sent me the video, so okay. that's okay. okay. Um, and so they put a bunch of yes. objects in front of you. And if you okay. just sort of yes. think Dalai yes. Lama, we will edit accordingly, they have but... like the one-year-old kind of go up to the objects and grab one. And that's supposed to represent mm-hmm. um, your future. So, wow. um, so the five things <laughs> were on the table where there was a calculator, there was a hammer, a shovel, a stethoscope and a book. Uh-huh. And the first time that I walked over, I, like, ran straight to my mom, and I was, like, in tears. I was like, why? And then the second time, I, I like, grabbed a stethoscope, and it was Ooh. so eerie kind of looking back and thinking, like, how did I grab a stethoscope and know that this is what I wanted to do? Mm. So I think yeah. that ever since I was young, it was something that I wanted to do. I wanted to do in medicine. Yeah. I wanted to work with humans and people. And so I, you know, eventually got older and I got a dog and I did some externships and then realized that I wanted something to like keep me up at night. And the one thing that did was just actually feeling so helpless in um, situations like my dog getting sick or, um, like a, a friend, a family member getting sick. And that's when I knew that I wanted to be in medicine mm-hmm. and wanted to help animals and indirectly help people too. Yeah. Also interesting, if we're going to interpret your uh, one-year-old escapade, your uh, your coming out mm-hmm. journey, you, <laughs> you could also interpret that you going back to your mother first was in a way you like having a questioning and then you return to medicine. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. Let's, I mean, let's not think too deeply in it, but that's like a really, <laughs> that's really interesting. I've never it's heard of that. that. I mean, it's really interesting tradition. Yeah, I didn't know and what to should... make of it when I, I'm still thinking about it. Like, what does it mean? <laughs> and what would have happened if there had been more options? Like, that's a good question. Like, what if someone had went for keys or just like less than like, like, you know, why is there yeah. no food in that? 
Oh, that, well, I feel like that could throw off all the children because it'd be just like, you know, oh, what about career paths? Yeah. I want them back. <laughs> cookie. I'll be Cookie Monster Which when I grow up. Wants a cookie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And I don't know and what then... all the things mean, anyways. Like hammer or shovel yeah. sounds like but... Yeah. Yeah, that'd be interesting to figure out. Okay. So, young Katie. And also, um, no, young Kate, I was going to ask you about your name, too, because I remember when we first met, um, you know, we'd like these little icebreakers and like little things. Um, and your name has H-O-R-N-G, mm -hmm. but people pronounce it wrong, right? People get this wrong. Yeah. It just, or people feel like it's ambiguous. It makes you ambiguous. Racially ambiguous. I get that a lot. And yeah, how do you I, deal with that? And there's no story behind. I mean, my first name is spelled differently too, so there you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was just sort of lost in translation when my parents moved here. There was an extra R added anyway. in my last name for whatever reason. <laughs> so, so yeah, Zion pronounced it correctly. It's Hong. So Hong, yes. But I do introduce myself as as, oh, God. as yeah. because it's the way it's spelled, mm -hmm. I don't really mind. Oh. But, mm. And Katie has, a, so her first name has a creative spelling because it's spelled K-A-T-T-I for our <laughs> listeners. Yeah, I get Caddy, and I said, it's Katie. Katie like, Horn? Me, me girls <laughs> reference. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, there's so many horrible puns. Hopefully you don't have to deal with any of them. Yeah. And people are, are, are nice. <laughs> so how, how did you, tell me about maybe undergrad then. What did you mm -hmm. um what was your undergrad experience like? Mm, my undergrad seems like it flew by because, <laughs> I don't know, from high school, I was like, you know what? I want to go to vet school. So why do I need to do undergrad? <laughs> but, you know, I actually really enjoyed it. I actually really enjoyed it. I loved being in New York. Um, and I would probably have to say my undergrad experience was very much more academically driven than anything because I wanted you know, to go to vet school. So, you know, just being in class and being a part of beta, um, I TA'd a little bit, but I always stayed involved in animal things. I was on the equestrian team for a little while. Oh, did some volunteering <clears throat> at the Wildlife Health Center there and just staying involved in research. I was an animal science major. So working yeah. with animals sort of worked into all of our classes. Zion remembers yeah. a photo of me working with a cow specifically. Oh, yes. I oh, love telling no. people about this. We, um, <laughs> Every I undergrad I know has a picture of the cow. Where their arm is fully inserted. Yeah. Into yeah. a cow <laughs> in the yeah. other end of the cow. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty common. Yeah. Yeah. Right. First thing. <laughs> Oh my god, was it always the same cow? Oh no, that's horrible. Oh, there were a few. There were, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so why, can you maybe explain for our listeners who are probably like just disgusted right now, but what's the use of, yeah, before we became the PhDivas? In that particular situation, tagline, we were doing intro, an in vitro fertilization lab. So um, when you go through the rectum, you can sort of palpate where their cervix is. So then you can insert like a device um, 
and pass it through the cervix, and that's where you would inject um, the sperm. So, but you had never inseminated, right? We never officially it. inseminated. Yeah, it was like a blank insemination. We just probably used saline or something like that. Yeah, I'm so many undergrads. I know. I mean, I just that time of year would come and I get like seven pictures. I'm like, okay, <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, this is and part of undergrad at Cornell. Like, they're always making the most interesting faces. Like they're really cheesing. Like ha ha ha, he he, he's really funny. Or like, ew, I'm really disgusted, but I'm still doing it. Yeah, um, yeah. But I know like the the vet school curriculum or the preparation is so intense. Um, how do you think it compares? Well, not compare, but everyone mm-hmm. knows about pre-med and, and the reputation that pre-meds have. But what about pre-vets? Yeah, um, it's actually the same requirements. So anyone who is applying to med school can apply to med school just the same. The exams that we take are different. So most vet schools just require GRE, like most other graduate schools, mm-hmm. whereas med schools will require the MCAT. Mm. Some vet students do take the MCAT, but not very often. So different prep in that sense. But in terms of the actual requirement classes, it's the same sort of biology, chemistry, organic chemistry. So it's the same kind of culture. It's, yeah, this is this the same. Yeah, culture. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. They do look for experience, like animal and vet experience outside of classes. But I was going to yeah. say that one thing that Katie also hasn't mentioned is that she also finished her, her degree a year early. So it's not oh, yeah. just that she was doing See, all these intense things, but she also packed it in to three years as opposed to the usual four years for the undergraduate degree. Yeah. I don't usually volunteer that information. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I think, I think people hear that and start expecting things, and I just disappoint people. Mm. So. Oh. Oh my god! I can't imagine you disappointing yeah. people. <laughs> I guess that though, I I can understand that you want you don't want people to have an impression of you before they meet you. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of how people make impressions based on things they assume, you were also in a sorority. I was. I was. Well, it, but it was, I was a sorority, right? It was in agriculture, actually, in agriculture oh. sorority. There were a lot of pre-vet students in it, um, and a lot of people in animal science. So mm-hmm. it was very animal-related. Yeah, How, a, what was that like? I was never in a sorority. I can't say that I have the typical sorority experience because this is a professional sorority and not a mm-hmm. social sorority. Mm-hmm. Which is not something I knew existed, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... We weren't part of Panhell, which is like the big umbrella um, organization, but um, it was good. We had, there were still, you know, your duties and responsibilities as a member. You come to chapter meetings and we plan certain events like social events and professional development events and community outreach events. So it's just nice to have something to look forward to like outside of classwork and a group of people where you feel belonged. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That yeah. sounds like a very positive experience. Yeah. And I remember cause I got to be meet both your big and then your eventual little Carissa and Miranda. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And my grand big. 
is actually getting married. So we all we all sort of still keep in touch. So if anything, that's one thing that um, I really enjoy about the the experience, just getting to know more people. And you and Krista ended up both going to UC Davis for vet school. Yeah, we both, we both moved out here together. Yeah, yeah. Do you feel like that doing the vet-related, well, the professional sorority helped you with um, preparing to apply to vet school? Hmm, applying to vet school. I, I, I mean, it's it's something like yeah, I put it on my resume and things, but not. I don't think skills and experiences I gained from that relationship from that experience quite matched, like say my experience in beta, like that was, mm. you know, just working with professors and having um, academic conversations and into, into like your personal lives. I think that was, it made a bigger impact for me. Oh, okay. Well, we feel, we feel special then. Yay. Yeah. So again, a little bit of context. We met um, Katie Back in our pre-PhD days, um, Katie was a resident of Hans Beta House on West Campus, and Katie was actually my student assistant. Yeah, <laughs> all yours. Yes, my minion. <laughs> yeah, they were they were a duo. Everybody, mm-hmm. Zion and Katie, got along very well, and they, they you know did a lot of events together, and it was just Busted really parties. Busted yeah, we did parties. microwaves. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, all too much. Yeah. So what was it like transitioning back to California? Transitioning back to California. Um, you know, I kind of miss New York when I left. So I still kind of miss it. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of moving west to east and east to west, I didn't really, it didn't really affect me too much other than I mean, I never put away my flip-flops when I was in New York anyways. <laughs> that could be the line. Yeah, but yeah. now, like, when I moved Pretty back, I realized my closet is, like, 80% winter clothes, and I did have to make that transition. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love both. Well, for me, it's more of a matter of, like, what I'm doing and who I'm working with, just amazing people. And in this case, I, large animals. Because I think, like, did you 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 wanted your specialization to be large animals, was it? Because, or how does I, the how does the choosing of which animals you work with work on an undergrad level, then to, through to through the to the grad level for vet school? Yeah. So that's a good question because in undergrad, when you're preparing for vet school, or if you're you know working, because I'd, I'd probably say the majority of people don't go straight from undergrad into vet school. They take some time off. Mm. So um, if you're just preparing, your experience in different species helps. So you don't really have to specialize then. You can come in with large, small, well-life experience. But once you get into vet school, they make you stream and track certain species, large, small, mm-hmm. you know, wildlife, zoo, food animal, equine. So I'm tracking right now small animal. And what do you mean tracking? Um, tracking really happens in your third and fourth years. You go through the, the you know 
basic foundational classes that everyone does, but then you start specializing in certain species because. Oh, you're taking so, coursework and doing. I thought you were like literally. Yeah. They assigned you to go out in the nature Follow that and like. Cow. <laughs> well, okay. If you say it like that, it makes sense. You don't. Yeah, I could see like yeah, like it's tracking animals. So, yeah, and you know, like two thirty-seven. It poops, you know. <laughs> And you have to like track them and really understand their nature. Okay, so mm-hmm. you mean take like the coursework has tracks? Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the first one sounds more interesting, but the second one is definitely way more practical. <laughs> way more practical. So, yeah. what small animals are covered by the small animal category? Because that seems to that could be a lot of things. Yeah, and we're constantly learning a bunch of things at the same time. Um, but typically, small animal um constitutes companion animals so these are like your dogs your cats basically your dogs and your cats anything outside of that rabbits birds gerbils those are typically exotic small animal so Mm -hmm. that's a subset but mainly dogs and cats i remember you telling me that because i was like rabbits are considered exotic like that's just Mm -hmm. it sounds funny as an outsider Yeah. And I remember that I think even in undergrad, you had experience like doing things like surgery and dissections, right? Yeah, I I think that's one of the advantages of going to a school like Cornell. They have a really um, great animal science program. Mm -hmm. And being at a school that has a vet school helps because they have the resources. Like I took a class in the vet school Mm -hmm. and we did a bunch of different things with different types of animals like sheep and frogs mm-hmm. and so you wouldn't get those opportunities if I you know if you go to a school that doesn't have mm-hmm. agriculture yeah because from what I understand there aren't actually very many vet schools compared to like other professions right so yeah. that's one of the way one of the ways that it's actually more difficult to get in because there aren't as many school choices yeah right? that's true yeah absolutely yeah and I feel like that's one of the things that makes Cornell interesting as a school like I remember hearing something about how Cornell seen by the other Ivies that like um like this sort of joke being that like Cornell (laughs) is barely an Ivy because there's more like we're SUNY Ithaca which is like to say the uh, State University New York Ithaca and part Mm -hmm. of that is does uh I think the joke comes from the fact that Cornell is not just a private institution but it's also a public land-grant institution which means it has this agricultural school but actually it means it has all these other strengths and perhaps draws different types of students than um, it would otherwise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if we could, let's go back to something you said earlier when you were saying you were you were in vet school and you're starting to realize, I don't think I love animals as much as everyone else does. Can you mm-hmm. take us through that? And, and when you were really <laughs> trying to make that decision to like, maybe I should be applying to a different program. Yeah, I should pivot. Um, I think it's, I think I was, I'm reflecting on sitting in a lecture hall and talking about, um, like renal, for example, and like nephrology and just, you know, we're going through a case study and everyone is so excited to like find the answer. And, um, we have, we have certain case studies where we work in small groups to try to figure out what the problem is, what's the evidence for it, what are the other differentials. Um, Uh 
the other thing, you know, other diseases that might cause this. And I, I just remember sitting there and not still feeling excited, but not quite as much as everyone else is. Mm-hmm. I was more interested in the finer details and I had more questions than answers. If I mm-hmm. look something up, you know, I was like, how does this process work physiologically? What's happening to this? Like, um, this, you know, molecule, like, why is it happening? Whereas in vet school, it's more, you know, you want to get to the bottom of the answer. Like, that's the answer. This is the treatment. This is a mm-hmm. sort of a flow of what you should do. Mm-hmm. And everything was very well defined. You know, there are gray areas when you're like, okay, this treatment could be good, but, you know, this treatment could also work. There's so there's still gray area in medicine, obviously. But for certain things, I wanted to look at something that no one, like, really was interested in or no one really knew. And I think yeah. from that experience, um, I just realized that I was – maybe my interests were slightly different from everyone else's. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but, I mean, I'm thinking about it. It must have been kind of scary a little bit in the sense that you – work so hard, you know, and, and under you, you're a baby and you pick up the stethoscope and then, you know, you want to be a veterinarian in high school. And then you work all through Cornell, with this whole goal of being a vet and then you get to vet school and then you're thinking, Oh wait, <laughs> right. What's happening. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I'm kind of harping on this point because I think a lot of people face that kind of point in their lives where they work hard for something, they're very good at it. And then you have to really question what do you do? Do I actually enjoy this? And then making that next move. Mm-hmm. And that's like really powerful. Yeah. The thing about that, I think that the goal doesn't really change, but plans do change in that process. Mm-hmm. I don't think that the things that I used to want to do, I don't want to do now. I think they're, it's sort of just fine tuning exactly what that is. So I think it's been an exciting process. You know, I'm trying um, to, like, move forward and to not have any regrets. And so far, it's led me in a good direction. So, yeah. So it seems like your mindset is also helpful here. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, for sure. Mindset. Yeah. And you guys have all gone through PhDs. You know what that's like mm-hmm. <laughs> and trying to stay positive. And, I know. Uh, you know. How are you feeling after year one? <laughs> Who you're one for good year, right? <laughs> um, does it sound like you're asking or telling? You? <laughs> oh my goodness! I think it's 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 similar, but also a little different being in the dual degree because I know that this is a means to an end, and I'll have more school after this. So mm-hmm. I think I think my mentors are really sensitive to that, and um, have been giving me good mentorship to try to move the PhD along and not have it drag and stay kind of stagnant. Hmm. Is there a very yeah. different culture between the professional degree and the graduate degree you find? Oh my gosh, that's such a good question. I think it <laughs> absolutely is. <Huh. laughs> Go on. It's, it's been such an interesting transition and it's a, um, it's a challenge for all the DVM PhDs and the MD PhDs that I've spoken to. Mm-hmm. Um, it's different being in a classroom setting 
and being in the lab. So yeah. in med or vet school, you're pretty much sitting in a lecture hall the whole day. If not, then you're in lab doing something. Mm-hmm. There's a very de- de- like defined beginning and end of what you should be learning in that one day, mm-hmm. <laughs> what yeah. you should be accomplishing, your competencies for that week. You can easily think back and say, what did I learn this week? Oh, yeah, that's right. I learned about... Um, cardiology I'm in cardiology or this week I learned about GI but you guys know when you're in your PhD like you're sitting in lab a week has passed and you think back what did I accomplish today (laughs) (laughs) what did you accomplish today oh yes I did the same thing today yeah every day every day (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. but the pace is certainly different Yeah. yeah Yeah, that's exactly what I was talking about when I was saying, um, like you were asking me how was research, and I was like, it's fine, (laughs) because I was literally just looking at like I have like this spreadsheet. There's stuff I want to do. There's something I want to prove, and then it's like your cells are still growing. (laughs) You know, like like oh, you know, this is like a multi a week long experiment, and you're only on day one, so you actually don't have any results, so you don't know the answers to all your questions because. If things need to go perfect, not perfectly, but like they need to live, it needs to keep going. It needs to. Some things are sequential, and it's like, what did I do all week? Like I know I did something, but really it's like just plating yeah. cells and watching them grow sometimes. Yeah. yeah, I think you have to develop resilience in different ways. Mm. Yeah. Way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Do you have to do course? You doing your coursework too, right? Yeah, there's still a fair amount, but. What is your PhD in? Um, the actual, we call it graduate group. It's, I guess, sort of a department that you would do in other schools. Um, okay. I'm doing integrative pathobiology, Ooh, okay. which sounds very vague. Yeah, what does that mean exactly? <laughs> um, so in past years, it's been called comparative pathology. Hmm. And it's more catered towards veterinarians or dual degree students. Um, and it, it's from the molecular level to the broad picture epidemiological level. We have classes in every part of that. So we don't quite dig into the finer details of, say, like, I don't know, mitosis, meiosis, and genetics. It's more... You're not missing much. <laughs> <laughs> Unless I get asked that question on my QE. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's mainly, I want to say mainly big picture things, how mm-hmm. things um, affect the individual and the system. And they're hoping that people coming from this, it's have more like a, of a diverse skill set. Yeah. I think this is a trend and um, something that we in the field, I'm curious what you have to say about this, Katie, um, are doing because research is becoming more integrated mm-hmm. so like to solve some of the mm-hmm. biggest challenges yep. you have to know immunology as well as biology as well yes. as a little engineering and and then how do you train people to be experts in all of this because the, our predecessors let's say they were trained as physicists and they learned immunology along the way or they were immunologists who study hiv only 
in for their hardcore chemist or something and they picked up a little stuff but we are being trained like bits and pieces and i really think programs like yours katie and we're trying to figure out how to teach people this the best way and i personally haven't found a situation that's really enjoyable because you end up feeling like i've ended up like i don't know a lot about anything but i know mm-hmm. I, I don't know a lot but down the line it's going to be useful but it's i see more and more of this happening yeah, that's such a good way to put it, and I totally agree. Even even beyond just topics like immunology, virology, microbiology, yeah. I think being in this field when you are when you have two degrees and you can't be good at everything, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. You try to focus on one thing, and that's going to take a toll on something else. Right. So I think that's that's going to be a constant struggle. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's absolutely important to to have that diverse, broad mindset because so much of research is heading that direction. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you're that, I, I think I think the best sort of like scientific thinking is when you're sitting down and say, I'm reading about um, this cognitive science neurology paper, and somehow being able to apply it to gut health and finding mm-hmm. that sort of connection and collaboration. Yeah. I think that is, yeah. Yeah, interdisciplinary is a catchphrase, but it's also yeah. practical. Like there, there is. Yeah. I feel like on one hand, I think that institutionally it gets fetishized in a way that abstracts it, but like mm-hmm. it, it is genuinely something that um, that does innovative work. Uh, so I had yeah. a question that was uh, on a completely different aspect of the profession, since <laughs> of course I can't get get into the question of research the way that Liz can. Uh, but what is it like to be in a professional profession that's female dominated? Of course, that's like such a different um, field for like so many of us in graduate school or professional schools. And like I feel like Liz and yeah. I often talk about what it's like to be a woman in academia, and especially for Liz, like mm-hmm. being a woman in STEM is a huge thing. But then you're in a profession where it seems to be completely the opposite. Do you want to talk a little yeah. bit about that? Yeah, I think that's so true. And it's it's unique in the health sciences. I think nursing is the second profession that comes close, mm. but not quite to the same extent that we see in vet med. Um, and it wasn't actually always the case. Um, I think the shift happened around the mid-1980s. Before that, it was still it was still male dominant. So it's just really in the last 30, 40 years. And That's interesting. Yeah, and what we see now, at least, um, about 80% of my cohorts are female, and that's pretty typical of most vet schools. Wow. Wow. Um, and, but but still, most veterinarians in leadership positions in academia and business owners are still male. Mm. So I, mm. I don't think that we see those direct correlations or shifts yet but i think that would be interesting to watch you know but we still see we see statistics all the time there's still a wage gap between men and women mm-hmm. yeah. and there there's been research trying to understand why we still see this age gap you know like women working part-time there's also discrepancy between the field you're in, large versus small animal. Hmm. More oh, women tend yeah. to choose small animal professions than large animal, although that's changing now because um, there's just more methods for 
chemical restraint. You don't have to use like brute force mm-hmm. and muscles in large animal industry. Wow, so you literally would have to hold down a horse through your with your body. <laughs> like that's what you're you're telling me. <laughs> Um, just like holding them against a wall, you know, you're doing a procedure. Or something. Just holding them against the wall. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but it's like forceful, forcible yeah. touching, as it were. Wow. <laughs> to use an old Cornell term. Um, wow. I, you know, I never thought about that. And then I think about how glorified the guys are. I remember at Cornell, like there's so few men there, they would have like a calendar they would sell every year. Oh yeah. Yep. The that's vet, a, that's men of famous. Yep. Where they're like posing in like all se- sexy, uh, you know, very tantalizing pictures uh, to, to fundraise, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God. Yep. And that would never. That could never happen the other way around. Right? Oh, that'd be yeah. so awkward. So awkward. Yeah. That's the thing. Ask actually, Davis also adopted. We have one too. Oh. <laughs> so yeah. So Ooh. sexy male vet calendars is like a, a common thing in higher education, apparently. <laughs> Yeah, I I don't know if you've seen like the YouTube videos that go around of, you know, certain vets that are male vets that are really famous because they're just, you know, really attractive and they like can play guitar yeah. and like deal with a bunch of different, you know, exotic animals and they become so well known because because there are so like few of them. That's so interesting, and it doesn't work the other way around. Like, when you're the only woman or, like, one of ten women, it's like you still don't get your voice. So, like, men are still winning, even when they aren't the majority, is yeah. basically what you're saying. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Damn. If, when they're the rare population, they get the acknowledgement, they get the calendar, and they get, like, to be cool. And yeah. when women are the rarity, they're not supposed to be there. Yeah. Yeah, the- absolutely agree. Oof. That's so disconcerting. Every- yeah. yeah. I think it's pretty common among cohorts, but everyone knows like who the men are and their names when there's so few of them. Whereas- Brad never gets called Todd, I bet. <laughs> I'm sorry, I should really stop. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah it's, I, I think- wanted to win for you, so I wanted to win for that so much. <laughs> Yeah, it'd be interesting to watch in the coming years how things shift, though. Mm-hmm. How do you think it'll shift? Give us some optimism, Katie. <laughs> how do I think that it'll shift? Um, I think, statistically speaking, more women will be in leadership positions. And I think it would be frustrating if there's some sort of... Um, what do they call it? Just like reverse sexism in where there are so many women that um, people will prefer, you know, still still men because wow. yeah, um, yeah, be disconcerting. So see, yeah. even, even as the demographics change, there still tends to be a, a remnant of male privilege that somehow is flexible enough to adapt to being either majority or minority in any case. Yeah, huh. I, I do notice when even now when we have like evaluations for certain classes that people are tougher on the female professors than they are on the male professors. Huh. And I do hope that I do hope that changes like I have I do have hope um, 
That's yeah, especially the wage gap that little. How did you learn about these kinds of things? Yeah, we actually in our curriculum have um, classes set aside for business. And there's actually a business management club that I'm in. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we get these statistics all the time. And to just be aware of the profession and where it's going, what we expect to see in our starting salary and down the line. If we choose to do residency or if we go straight to the workforce. Um, so I think these are all things that are good to good to be aware of. Mm-hmm. And I they, think it's, actually, yeah, particularly striking, as you say, that like, I feel like it is fairly commonly known now that there's so many studies that female professors get judged more harshly. But I think we're usually th- um, used to thinking of that in like male dominated or even gender parity situations. But then it's interesting, again, in a female dominated profession, yep. somehow yeah. we still internalize to still be much tougher on the few women that have managed to make it through. Yeah. Yeah. So thinking about the future, Katie, what do you want to do? And I know... That's a tough question. I kind of hate that question, but what would you envision? Oh, my goodness. Well, I, as of now, think that it would be great to be in academia. (laughs) Ideally, ideally would like to be able to practice medicine and teach and do research at the same time. But it's so hard to do all of those things really well. I think eventually I'll have to choose. And I've spoken to um, a lot of professors in similar situations, and you can't do 50-50. No one does 50-50 anymore. Yeah, there's no mm-hmm. thing. Most people are 75% clinics, 25% research, or the other way around. Mm-hmm. And after, I mean, after finishing my first year of research, I feel, still think it's really cool but I'll check in with you again in like one to three years. (laughs) Um, So I think, yeah, I think it would be nice um, to stay in the academic setting. There aren't a lot of um, vet universities out there, so Mm -hmm. um, they're really limited uh, for like professorships and things like that. So I think I'd be comfortable working at a medical hospital like a medical university and sort of working my way back to the vet mm-hmm. um but who knows life might happen and i might enjoy working in industry much more mm-hmm. you know to lead a more comfortable life that way but i'd say i mean there's no i, I don't have a, an exact plan but there's always planning involved and it'll yeah. always kind of ebb and flow mm-hmm. so yeah. I see the next five years. (laughs) So I feel like I have another tricky question, although, again, from a very different aspect. Um, I was wondering what, uh, of course, as someone who is working with animals, who cares about animals, what is it like for either you or for people in vet school thinking about ethics in animals? Because, of course, I think this really interesting question of, like, you know, because you work with animals, do you feel pressured to be vegetarian or vegan? Like, do you have to take a stance on things like PETA? Like, cause I remember that, um, one of your friends from undergrad, uh, Alexander, mm-hmm. he's, a, he's at Cornell. I remember he did write like an op-ed for the Cornell Sun about like why oh, he's not a vegetarian he? and he's um, a vet see. person. Yeah. So like, yeah. how do you feel like being a vet person 
either informs your own stance towards like yeah your the way that you live your life or the way yeah. that you just see a way you see your peers approach this I think that's such a good question because I think people from both sides of the coin are really interested in the same question coming from veterinarians. Um, I think there are different aspects from, from both the companion animal side and the food animal side. You're probably thinking about the food animal side. Yeah. Or like both, Um, but I'm just curious whatever insights you can give us. Yeah. So if you think about like dogs and cats um, as veterinarians, it is our job to serve in the best interests of our patients and our patients can't always tell us what they want. Mm-hmm. So the decision is usually made from what we think are the, is, is the, the, you know, are in the best interest are in the animals and from the owner. So it's mm-hmm. always a constant struggle when we're faced with things, um, situations where, for example, the animal needs to be put down but the owner wants to keep the animal around. Mm. So I think that's something that separates us from the medical human doctors. It's because we're faced with those decisions all the time. We don't put down humans, typically. We don't, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and in food animals, the relationship is different with our with, with the patient and the owner. Right? I, I don't think I can speak for all veterinarians, but I know that we can relate when we say that we take an oath to protect animal welfare, mm-hmm. but it's also our job to, you know, serve the world's population and make sure we have safe food that passes certain standards. Mm-hmm. So innately they're responsibilities to the consumer and the animal. Okay. And I think that we can bridge this gap by providing the best medical care that's possible for all the animals involved. And I think that's, as far as we can go in terms of making in a statement of opinion mm-hmm. was that we're here to provide the best care for the animals and advocate for what we think is best. But for some of the cultural implications, I, I, I think um, I don't have a statement on that mm-hmm. and rather just a duty to serve you know, animal welfare in the most in the in the most like medically sound way possible. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Katie. Yeah. I feel like that's like like I can't imagine how difficult it is like to negotiate that. Yeah, like you sound like a vet already. Answer. All right, <laughs> good. Right. Trick you. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was told I was like, this is this is great. I like this. I've never thought of, I've, but I've never thought about it in that way about yeah. the ethical issues and but but also. What does it mean for you as a vet to say something, or a vet meaning a vet a vet in training? Yeah, like you're you're being used as a type of voice of authority, like a type of citation for, for either from argument, both sides. Right? Yeah, exactly. And I'm sure there are vets that have personal opinions about both of these sides and will vouch for either side. But I think in general, we all we all have the common ground of this oath, and you know the goal of just trying to make animals feel like taken care of mm-hmm. and try to minimize pain and discomfort as much as possible. Mm-hmm. I want to shift the conversation to um, something that we had at the very beginning of our talk where both you and Liz started talking about inflammation from very different angles. <laughs> and I was wondering, like, I feel like that might be an interesting way to also round up some of the conversation because it shows like 
how can one concern and both of you being in very different fields uh, approach it differently but yeah i love that the the human animal interaction mm-hmm. and the connection between the two yeah so you're you're looking at hiv right now right yeah mm-hmm. yeah and I guess tell me a little more about what you're doing. I heard the one sentence. Yeah. 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 Okay. My general interest is really in gut health and the role of probiotic microbes and chronic inflammation. So the gut, we, we know it serves our bodies in digestion and nutrition, but it's actually also a key in balancing the immune system, mm-hmm. both you know locally in our gut, but also systemically. And the best way I think to look at that is to look at infections that target the gut, one of which is HIV. So most people don't know, but HIV actually targets the gut and establishes. I did yeah, I didn't know. Yeah, it, it establishes early viral reservoirs. A lot of HIV patients suffer from GI problems because of it. Even with antiretroviral therapy, they still have a lot of GI problems that are unresolved. People mainly think of HIV as something that um, an infection that de- depletes your CD4 T cells. It's just a certain type of right. immune cell. You just get cold. You get a sick. Yes. Yeah, you get yeah. really sick. You get really immunodeficient. Um, so, I mean, gut health has so many implications for the body and HIV specifically. So I'm looking at... Um, early and late antiretroviral therapy treatment and treatment with probiotic microbes. These commensal mm. bacteria that's really good for your gut. It's supposed to be anti-inflammatory. Mm. Both of those in the context of HIV. And what we've found so far is that even short-term treatment or exposure to these probiotic bacteria has have like dramatic uh, reparative effects. Wow. beyond what we can see from antiretroviral therapy. So we've developed a series of experiments to look at like structural, immunological, and biochemical ways in which this connection between your host and your um, bacteria in your gut can be optimized in chronic disease like HIV. That's amazing and so important. Like like my, my angle, of course, is from someone who like is really interested uh, interested in LGBTQ studies and queer studies. And of course, um, HIV AIDS plays such a massive role, but I only knew like, I feel like there's so much of the conversation is, as you said, like the more common perception about the immunological. So this sounds so revolutionary. Thank you for doing this work. Um, (laughs) No, that's amazing. I I was thinking of two things. So one, um, the gut is just like a, the new frontier in a way. And imagining what actually happens in the gut. Um, and so I didn't know about the link of HIV to the gut. I'm not surprised, though, especially because we already know that there are neurons in the gut that communicate to your brain yeah. and that, that give you these signals. So there's this wide connection. The more I learn about immunology, actually, I'm not going to say that. That would be a lie. I'm not <laughs> learning. I mean, I think an, an immunologist would probably, like, if, if God were an immunologist, he would just stab, he or she would stab me. Strike me with lightning. Strike me with lightning. So violent. Right, right. Uh-huh. Lightning is way worse than stabbing, I guess. But the point is, I'm learning about the immune system and how interconnected everything is. And mm. 
um, the gut is really interesting and inflammation in general is interesting. So I think about it from a cancer perspective where um, inflammation drives cancer. Yeah. And there are ways in which um, higher incidence of cancer can be linked. Higher incidence of cancer is linked to inflammation. You know how some people say uh, an apple a day keeps a doctor away? Well, people will also say an aspirin a day keeps cancer away. Hmm. So we're trying to reduce inflammation. I mean, yeah. don't 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 go and try to take aspirin every day and then not go to the doctor or something like that. Mm-hmm. But but this idea of local events of inflammation chronically can lead to environments that can lead to mutation that then leads to the evolution of cancer. Um, yeah. And how for me, how immune cells are infiltrating in there and actually helping tumors. So a lot of tumors mm-hmm. that are very um, deadly have access to your lymph node system mm-hmm. and they have a lot of immune cell communication. It's just so interesting. Yeah. And then of course it's the cells, but also with the cells secrete and like all those, the kind of cytokine signaling that's happening. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you said <laughs> chronic inflammation because cro- inflammation itself is actually good for it you. Is. Way for your body to counteract um, temples are good <laughs> pathogens and things. Yeah. Yeah, I think but that's. It's, it's, yeah, it's such an interesting. It's so interesting to think about because the HIV field has borrowed so many concepts from the cancer field too. There's so much overlap, even beyond immunology. Yeah. Yeah, because there there is a certain amount of proliferation that's happening in the gut uh-huh. um, that gets upregulated during HIV. And so we use a lot of the cancer tools to look uh. at that. And I was studying colorectal cancer for a while. I know there's uh-huh. a huge yeah. macrophage infiltration. Yep. And I think colorectal cancer is really particularly closely linked to the chronic inflammation. Like you can start off with having chronic uh, IBC, um, chronic bowel, uh, oh my gosh, what Little is the word? Bowel, IBD? IBD, yes, there like, it can be precursors to forming polyps and, mm. oh my gosh, I don't want to say the wrong thing here, but IBS. yeah, inflammation in the colon and how it causes the um, yeah. cells to grow out of order, like the organization of the lining of the endothelium, it's, it's, it's interesting, and it's what what I, what I also say interesting design connects you back in here. Mm-hmm. But if you think about the fact that we are talking about almost two completely different disease models, but they involve the same cells, I guarantee mm-hmm. you that if we talk more, the same type cell types like T cells are also involved in cancer or are oh. not. And just the idea that there is a unifying system in our body that is related to all of this. But one thing shifts and it does something different for for each system. I think is really, I'm in awe mm. of uh, science when I think of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, yeah. My perspective on this, like, like this was amazing conversation to be sitting in on. Um, as someone who does history of science, is it? It's so fascinating to me then, like this highly, like this collaborative conversation that you're having the way that it's abused and pop in the popular imagination like the way that like 
uh, inflammation, for example, is a phrase is now being used to like you know market a whole other subsection of uh, pseudoscientific medications or like just the way that like you know toxin and stuff like that have become oh. sort of meaningless <laughs> terms that have been used in type of this new AG marketing towards really bougie like Gwyneth Paltrow yeah. types. Um, it's whole grain and organic. It's gluten free. Uh, it's, yeah, yeah. Like although sort of, I will admit that the when I think about inflammation. I do, we are what we eat, and um, some of the biggest arguments I personally had about thinking about what I, about my diet, have been about inflammation, about chronic inflammation mm. in your body, and how chronic inflammation leads to, I think inflammation is the mother of all diseases. Well, not all diseases, obviously, but a lot of diseases. Um, yeah. Diabetes, mm-hmm. heart disease, obviously, but... yeah obesity and obesity kind of feeds into the other so cancer and obesity have links and yeah yeah it's just yeah there's yeah. some things you can change mm-hmm. about that or some things that are unhealthy that like create like um, reactive oxygen species or like yep. environmental things there actually is a link between eating um barbecue like charcoal sorry um bro- broiled eating red meat is linked mm-hmm. to colorectal cancer, and mm-hmm. especially if it's really burnt. Mm-hmm. And I've heard that, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's just, yeah, yeah. There, that's for me like the most convincing argument about what you watching what you eat, but um, and thinking about when I think about organic or like what kind of chemicals are in here, because you are doing things that affect you chemically. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that's one of the advantages of working in a field like this is that there are people from different fields working on similar things, and you just have to make those connections. Like like you said, reactive oxygen species, mitochondria, which is the energy oh source of all of your cells, <laughs> yeah. is connected to every sort of you know disease, whether or not it's mm-hmm. from a pathogen or mm-hmm. um, or not. So. Something that we've looked at is like fatty acid synthesis. Like, oh my gosh, I'm borrowing literature sources from from diabetes and looking at it in the context of HIV. Yeah. So that's that's been really interesting. And God forbid a chemist breaks it one day. You know, yeah. chemist perspective on fatty acids is just like yeah, uh, like playing yeah. tic tac toe or something. Yeah. It looks like to me. Yeah. And one of the interest, most interesting things about studying pathogens like HIV is that it, it takes advantage of your body's normal response to fight off infection. So a lot of the things that you think are working yeah. aren't working because it's hijacking. Mm-hmm. It's hijacking it. So mm-hmm. trying to think about how it happens is, I think, a good way to find a cure. Mm-hmm. And that's actually what Liz is doing as well. She, as she did in her TED talk. I was just thinking about like if the if just the way that if HIV hijacks, like the model that Liz is working on has to do with like how can you actually use those that same type of system to deliver good things, not just bad things, oh, put in the most simplistic yeah. terms well, possible. It's very yes. simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I'm not sure I told you about this, Katie, but the work that I'm the drug delivery aspect of what I'm trying to do is take advantage of the fact that our immune cells know, our immune system 
recognizes inflammation um, instantly, better, faster than any detection system that we have. And so if you can load drugs, particles that contain drugs or genes, you can do delivery with higher efficiency to those places where they're needed the most. Um, so I'm working on an idea that's similar to immunotherapy that exists, except I'm not actually trying to activate cells. I don't want to change what they're normally doing. I want to say, do what you normally do, but let me give you like a in, like something to help you deliver this drug. Because mm -hmm. the immune system is like the only thing we have now that can go through the blood-brain barrier. It can survive mm -hmm. the bloodstream. It can go past the fibrotic parts of a tumor. It can go into the pancreas. It can go into the testes. It goes into your bone marrow. It can go everywhere, and we can't. We don't have a particle that could do that on its own. Mm -hmm. There's no pill you can take that can do that. So I'm trying to take advantage of that from a drug delivery standpoint, um, learning immunology a little bit along the way. <laughs> yeah, that's so that's so interesting because it sounds like do you have to take these cells out of the person's body to give them the drug, Apparently, then put it back into the body? Currently, you do, um, but the next generation that we're working on, so I should also admit I'm not the only person working on this, but, <laughs> the, but the ability to inject, the, inject these particles and have them latch on to the yeah. cells in the bloodstream would be ideal. Although immunotherapy techniques are currently, now they can take your cells out, harvest them, and mm -hmm. put them back in within a week. So they're getting, mm. they're getting pretty good at doing that, but it doesn't work for every disease. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. Maybe this is a good place to start wrapping up because like this was yeah. a very long conversation. It was a great conversation, but I'm sure <laughs> oh, it might yeah. be a challenge for, for yeah. us to edit into, into something that's manageable. Yeah, sure. um, yeah. Well, thank you so much for catching up with us, Katie. And I feel like we wanted um, to interview you as part of like, I guess a mini series of, again, of talking to people in, prof in professional degrees, but it's sort of fantastic that because of course you're straddling the line between professional and graduate, you're sort of giving us like the perspective of both sides as someone who knows that. And I feel like that's incredibly valuable. So thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I've been a long, long time fan of, of you guys and also PhD list. So Woo. yeah, thank I tell you. my friends, <laughs> I'm, I feel yeah, like my fun. life is better because of this conversation. I'm really Aww. happy to, to hear Good. that you're doing well and that you're changing the vet world and um, <laughs> doing great work. So I've been Dr. Zainyao. Um, maybe I'm just yeah I'm gonna temporarily turn off this personality and depower like a robot uh, but, <laughs> yes as you turn Back off this episode life. yes I will be shutting off maybe I said Dr. Mm. oh <laughs> wow that's been the plot twist the whole time yeah ooh I get to be a part of this finale yeah <laughs> but Friday's <laughs> But anyways, talking about weird use of technology, um, if you like this conversation, uh, please like us, review us on iTunes, subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, um, CastFM, whatever other platform you use. And yeah, thanks for listening and take care. Bye. Bye.